we are continuing our series going through the story of the Exodus this morning. And so if you've got your Bible with you, we're just going to jump straight in to Exodus chapter 33. Um, uh, if you're not used to reading the Bible, the book of Exodus is the second book of 66 books in the Bible. And so uh, it's really close to the front. In my Bible, about five millimeters, maybe four. Okay. Uh, Exodus 33, it'll come up on the screen as well. We're going to read from verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. It's a good thing I haven't just been to the dentist. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. Because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. And then just for the sake of time, we're going to skip down to verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name and you've found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. God's word to us today. I'm so excited about it. Um, and many of you will know that my wife Taryn and I, we were on sabbatical in the summer. It's so kind of our church family, having led the church for 11 years, to just give us a few months away from the front line just to be refreshed and restored in God and uh, I guess physically, emotionally, spiritually restored. And it was just a really, really sweet time. And to be honest, after a few days of just really, really long lions and just kind of catching up on some sleep. Actually, the predominant emotion that we began to experience was thankfulness. It was gratitude because we started to look at everything that God's done in our church family over the last uh, 10, 11, 12 years. And it is actually pretty wild. You know, God has taken a, a well-meaning, but dare I say slightly dysfunctional church family on an amazing journey uh, of growth, multiplication, planting, you know, where once we were one congregation about the size of the congregation that's here in this room today. Uh, now, if you include all the sites and the services and the church plants, there are now 16 different worshipping communities doing mission in different communities all over Scotland, really. It's completely wild. And, and actually, one of the very last things we did before we went on sabbatical was we opened up our doors and the leaders of 17 different vineyard churches from around the UK and Ireland came to hear a little bit of our story. 
So churches like Melton Mowbray and uh, uh, Bristol and Carrickfergus and Dublin, places like this, uh, came because they could see that there's a story being written here of multiplication and growth and planting and uh, I was going to say reproduction, but you have to be careful. Anyway, so... Um, so, uh, so, so you can see why, like, for the first few weeks, we were like, oh, Lord, you are so kind to do all of that. We could never have dreamt it. We could never have imagined it. Uh, you know, this is so, it, was, like, it would have been impossible to even conceive. But, Lord, you've done something so special amongst us. And so we were just so thankful. And, uh, but the truth is that over the weeks then, actually what started to happen is that that emotion of gratitude and thankfulness began to be overwhelmed and overtaken by a different emotion, if it's an emotion, um, which is hunger, spiritual hunger. We just began to feel like, oh Lord, do you know, it's lovely that people know about the story that's being written here, about multiplication and growth and planting, that's lovely, about people coming to know Jesus, that, that's, that's really lovely. But Lord, please would you come and visit us? And, and honestly, like, part of it was for our church, but, but so much of it was just for us. It was like, Lord, please would you come and visit me? Please, please would you help me to know a greater measure of your voice, your presence, your power? Please would you just let me know what it means to say that you're Emmanuel, God with us? Like, please, please, for me personally, could I know that to a greater measure? I just began to feel so spiritually hungry, and so did Taryn. But also for our church, like, wouldn't it be amazing if... Our church was known as the church where, do you know what, if you need to meet God, then you should go there. Or, or do you need a breakthrough in your life? I tell you, God's power, his presence is found with those people. You should just try and find those people because if they pray for you, something happens. And so we just began to feel so desperate for that. And, and, and as we're going on that journey, one of the reasons why we're preaching through this Exodus story is because actually uh, that's the story that we were journeying with. So most days, if I'm honest, we would find ourselves reading in the story of the Exodus. And as we were doing that, if I'm honest, this passage or a couple of passages that we've just read together were absolutely central to that. So, so nearly every day I found myself just meditating on, chewing on this particular passage. And the reason is because I, I, I think it's, I mean, these are bold statements, but, but I wonder whether it's one of the most, if not the most significant moment in Moses' life. And he had a lot of significant moments. But it's because God brings him to this moment of choice. It's a moment of decision. And, and the decision is this. God says to him, you can have everything that you've ever wanted. Like you can have literally everything that you've ever longed for. Whatever your heart has set itself on, you can have it. You know, everything that I've ever promised you, you can have. You know, you can have the land flowing with milk and honey. You can have freedom from the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and all the other ones that I've forgotten. You know, you can have everything you've ever wanted, but I'm not coming with you. And Moses says to God, no deal. That's no deal. I don't want that. I'd rather just keep pitching my tent in the wilderness. I'd rather just keep wandering through the desert. I'd rather just keep, uh, you know, receiving nothing from your hand if it means that I can have your presence. 
And, and every time I think about it, every time I read it, like something in my soul just turns over or, or like leaps or something like that. I just think, yes, Moses, that is a flipping brilliant decision. Like you understand what is really centrally important in life. That we would know a greater measure of God's presence with us, that he would be with us. Let's not, let's not have anything if it doesn't mean that we lose that. You know, Jesus, I was thinking this morning, Jesus said to the blind man, he said, what is it you want me to do for you? And what if God were to ask that of us? What is it you want me to do for you? And what if we came up with an absolutely rubbish answer? Like what if the longings of our heart were just so desperately shallow? I feel just so challenged, so inspired, gosh, that that we would start to realize with Moses what actually is really important. Maybe it's time to get our priorities straight. Psalm 84, my soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And it seems to me that the reason why this passage is so significant for us is that God's heart seems to be moved. Like you have to be really theologically careful how you say this because God is immutable he's unchangeable he's you know the same yesterday today and forever but it does seem as if something in God is moved because in verses two and three God says I will give you the land I will send an angel but I will not come with you and then they have this intense moment of conversation and discussion that results in verse 14. God says, okay, it's a yes from me. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And so it just seems to me that whatever it was that Moses said or did or whatever it was that God was looking for that ultimately resulted in him saying, okay, it, I, I, there was a no, but now it's a yes. We've got to find out what that is. Which is why this, this passage is so incredibly important to us. We just have to ask ourselves the question, how the heck did that happen? Before we answer that question, let me just say that we are holding two um, equally important truths in tension here. They seem like they're two truths that might contradict each other, but somehow in God they don't. The first thing is, it's all grace. It's all grace. Like we could show up next week and the power of God could just descend on us and we could all be pinned to the floor or pinned to our seats or it could be like our bodies have been plugged into the electricity main. You know, uh, there could be people wandering past outside who are suddenly overwhelmed with the conviction of sin and the desperation to get themselves right with God and they could just come they could just be drawn by the spirit of God through the doors here or through the doors in Mern's Academy or wherever it is and they could be suddenly spontaneously saved like we could we they could be people here who just even during the worship they're instantly healed of something that they've been living with for the whole of their lives or for years and years and years like God by his sovereign grace could just decide today's the day and the reason that we know that is because that's what happens in the Bible, right? So, for example, you think about the Apostle Paul, or Saul as he was then. Murderous, angry Saul, and then God suddenly steps in to his life, blinded by the light of God. Or you think about uh, Moses at the burning bush. You know, he's a murderer. He's been running from God for 40 years. 
and God just suddenly breaks into his life. Maybe you are in one of our services this morning and you just suddenly know that God is breaking into your life. It's a sovereign grace. God can do whatever he likes, whenever he likes, however he likes. That's the first truth. It's all grace. I won't say but because it crosses out everything you've just said. So I'll say and. It's also true to say that God moves in response to the prayers, the heart, the lifestyle of his people, the desperation of his people. I'm thinking about, for example, in Acts chapter 4, where Peter and the other disciples, they're in the, perhaps the upper room, certainly in a room together, and suddenly, as they, as they cry out to the Lord, they're saying, Sovereign Lord, stretch out your hand, and suddenly God responds to that, and the whole building shakes with the power of God. He's responding to their prayer. Taryn and I were in an earthquake in the summer. We know what that's like for the building to shake. It's pretty exciting and dramatic. I want to see that, but without the earthquake, like just with the power of God. So, and of course, this moment in this passage is an example where God relents. He gives Moses what he asks for. And so it's absolutely true that it's all grace. It's also true to say that somehow God responds to the longings, the desperation, the prayers of his people. And so therefore, this passage is absolute gold because not only do you see God changing his mind or at least uh, something changing in the heart of God, but you see why. He actually explains it in verse 17, what it was that made the difference. Verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. Now you might say to yourself, well, hang on a minute. What do you mean you know Moses' name? I thought you knew everyone's name. You know, I'd like to think that you know my name too, Lord. Like, what is this really all about? Well, the truth is that if you lived in an ancient culture, then you would understand that, that somebody's name really signifies their essence. It signifies the core of who they are. That's why often throughout the Bible, when God does something dramatic in somebody's life that changes who they are, God often gives them a new name to represent their new essence, the new core of who they are. And so when God is saying to Moses, I know you by name. He's saying way more than I know what your mates call you at the pub. He's saying, no, no, no. I understand who you are. I see you. I see your heart. And there's something about your heart that has moved me. And so I guess that's why I've called this talk the heart of the matter, because ultimately the thing that makes all the difference is not so much what we do or what we say, it's who we are. What is it that God is looking for in our hearts? The first thing I think he's looking for is a sensitive nature. The key reason that God gives in the first half of the passage for why he's not coming with them is found in verses 3 and also in verse 5. He says, I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people. And then he goes on to say, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, I might destroy you on the way. Now, this is one of those moments where a little bit of Bible study goes a long way. Because I, I was thinking to myself when I read it, 
what do you mean they're stiff-necked? Of course they're stiff-necked. They're camping. You know, it's one of the things, like, I mean, I'm not a big fan of camping, but it's one of the things that you get from camping, right? And it goes along with damp socks and having that weird dilemma where you really need a pee in the middle of the night, but you're in your sleeping bag, it's so warm, and you think, oh, no, this is, I, I, what should I do? Like, stiff necks comes with camping, but that's not really what he's talking about. Most people for most of history would absolutely understand what the criticism is there because most people for most of history have been living in an agrarian culture. In other words, they've been living on the land or off the land. And so most people know, like, if, if, you, if you have to basically sow seeds of things and then eat whatever is grown, then you're going to need to plough up the land first. And so you, for most of history, people would have used an ox or something like it to do that. And so, you know, you use your ox. If you don't have an ox, you borrow your neighbor's ox and then you strap a plough to it. And then with one hand, you have your hand on the plough, just trying to keep it straight and in line but the, and kind of down into the earth. At the same time as that, with the other hand, you, you, you've got a big stick. And so the big stick is like your version of the steering wheel, okay? So you, as you're plowing the land, you've got one hand on the, it's very hard to do this with a microphone in my hand, but uh, you've got one hand on the plow, the other hand, you're tapping on the shoulder of the ox to direct it. If you've ever been in a car with someone who's driving and they like to look where, you know, oh, look at that. And you say, no, 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 please stop doing that. Because every time, wherever you look, you suddenly find yourself steering in that direction, you know. And, and it's the same thing with an ox. You know, wherever the ox looks, that's where it goes. And so you steer the ox by tapping it on the shoulder, on the neck. And so, if you know, you think, oh, my goodness, the, the, the thing's going totally in the wrong direction. It's just veering off to the right. Give it a quick tap on the left. The ox moves its head and suddenly it starts going in the straight direction. And so therefore, a really well, you know, a really great ox is one that has a really, really sensitive neck, right? So you could just like, just a little tiny tap there and he's like, oh, I think that's a one degree turn, okay? And then it's, you know, off it goes and it's just keeping perfectly straight all the way through. Just almost like a hint of a tap, you know, like a little just gentle breath of a tap. And then, oh, look, there you go, just keeping it absolutely straight. Whereas a rubbish ox, the kind of one that you just think is actually would just be easier to do this myself, would be uh, one that just has a leathery, thick neck, you know, all muscles there but no brains, you know, and... And so it just really can't move its head. And so you're kind of thwacking this thing on the neck and it's just going, no, sorry, I'm just going wherever the heck I like, you know. And so you're just like, oh, no, this is terrible. I'm just like thwacking this thing and it's not going anywhere. Do you understand what God is saying? He's saying, you guys are unleadable. Like I'm trying to whisper to you, but even if I shout to you, you don't even pay any attention. I'm looking for you to be the kind of people who just even the faintest hint and you respond. I'm wanting to lead you, guide you with my voice and my provision. And, but you just carry on regardless. You just chunter on. You just do whatever the heck you like. You're just so stubborn, resistant, insensitive to my leading. God is looking for people who respond quickly and obediently to his voice. 
That's the first thing, a sensitive nature. The second one is a commitment to stewardship. If we were to go back a few chapters, then we would find very specific instructions that God was giving to the Israelites about what they're to do on the night that they leave Egypt. So some of you will know the story, you know, the angel of the Lord is coming and he's going to visit house by house the Egyptians and it's not going to go well for them. And, but, but before that happens, God says to them, I want you to just go around to your neighbors and just chap on their door and ask them for all their possessions. And um, so the deal was they were supposed to go around. Hi there. Um, you remember we sort of met each other when we were washing our cars outside, you know, last summer. Well, anyway, I was wondering, I was thinking to myself that you would give me your mother's engagement ring and, uh, you know, the pearls you got locked away under the bed. And, and, and God says, I'll make you favorably, then favorably disposed towards you. And so they'll give you whatever you ask for. That's in uh, chapter 11, verse 2. And so it's this kind of Jedi mind trick thing happening where they're like, I'm giving away all of my valuables, all of my silver and gold to these people just because they've asked for them. And they'd be thinking afterwards, why did I do that? So they've got all these gold and silver as they begin to travel away from Egypt and into freedom. And God actually had a very specific purpose for that silver and gold. And actually you find that out in chapter 35. So it's a couple of chapters after this one where God says, now what I want you to do is take up an offering amongst the people and gather together all of the silver and gold and use that for making the various aspects of the tabernacle. And so in the heart of God, there was a plan for every single, like, dangly earring and necklace and so on. You know, so, so there, his vision for this stuff was, okay, you're going to take it from Egypt. You're going to carry it. You're going to maybe wrap it up in some kind of a way. You're going to carry it really, really carefully until you get to the moment when I ask you for it. And then you're going to hand it over. And instead, they do two absolutely tragic and hideous things with it. The first thing they do is they worship it. So just actually in the previous chapter, in chapter 32, that's exactly what happens. They make this golden calf. They make this idol out of it. And then they bow down and they worship it. I mean, imagine that. Making an idol of possessions, of wealth. Imagine just like living your life for that. Imagine just saying, oh, I just love you so much. I just worship you. I just so value this thing, this gold, this wealth. It's just horrible. The second thing, after they've worshipped it, the next thing they do is wear it. So it's like they've rolled in it all of a sudden. And so, you know, God has to say to them, oh my goodness, take it off. It's in verse 5 of our passage. Just take it. What are you doing? Like just adorning yourselves with this wealth. That was not the purpose of it. Honestly, I believe with all my heart that if we are going to see more of God's presence and power, then we need to go out and uh, take our love of wealth and take it out the back and give it a good kicking. Because Jesus said, didn't he, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and mammon. 
So making an idol out of your possessions or just adorning yourself with your wealth is deeply inappropriate for the people of God. In God's heart, it was so simple. They were supposed to carefully receive and carry and look after all of the wealth of Egypt. And then they were supposed to carry it carefully, steward it carefully, and then put it into the purposes of God. They're supposed to wait and say, Lord, what is it, now that we've got it, what is it that you want me to do with it? And then they were supposed to then say, oh, okay, I've got the instructions now, and then I'm going to deploy that wealth into the purposes of God. What if we were to do that? He's looking for people with a commitment to careful stewardship. And the last thing is, he's looking for people uh, with a determination to contend. The most recent full-on revival in the UK actually happened in 1949 on the island of Lewis. Many of you will know about that revival when God suddenly turned up in a powerful way in a uh, a, a cluster of communities on the Isle of Lewis. And I love the stories of that time. I love, for example, there was a story about there were a hundred teenagers having a dance in a church hall or in a village hall or whatever, and that was perceived to be deeply sinful, I guess. But anyway, they, the, the Holy Spirit, just without any mention whatsoever of the gospel or anything like that, the Holy Spirit just descended on this group of teenagers, and they fled from the village hall and ran towards the church. Well, there's another moment where the Holy Spirit just descends on a particular village, and people just come out of their homes just weeping, and they don't know what to do. Like, what, what do we do with this you know, sudden conviction of sin. And they, they, they so were clueless that they just went to the police station. Like, oh, help us. I love that. Anyone a policeman, policewoman here? No, I don't know. Uh, I just love the idea that a policeman would have to deal with something like that. There's another moment where there's a prayer meeting that goes on till two in the morning in a particular church building. And then they open the doors at the end of the service and there were 600 people just kneeling on the grass outside, just unable to get as far as the church before they had to kneel because of the power and the presence of God. And lots of people say, oh, those kind of things began to happen when Duncan Campbell came to visit, who was a relatively, you know, kind of minor Christian celebrity at the time. It's not true. It began with two sisters aged 82 and 84, Peggy and Christine Smith. Peggy was blind Christine was profoundly disabled with arthritis. And their hearts just began to break because there wasn't a single young person who was part of any church in that area. And so they began to pray. And as they began to pray, their hearts kind of settled on this one verse in Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44 verse 3. It says, I will put pour water on him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. And so day after day, they just prayed, Lord, we are thirsty. And this ground is really, really dry. Please, would you come? And eventually, they become, became so stirred with it all that they uh, phoned up the minister, and they, you know, the local minister, and they said, hey, listen, we're basically housebound, so we can't get out, but we would really love it if you would pray too. So how about if we all pray on Tuesday nights and Friday nights? We'll pray in our home. You can pray in like a barn or a church building or something like that. And, we'll, and so these two dear ladies would just kneel down at, uh, in the early evening. And often they'd still be on their knees at three or four in the morning. Remember I said that one of them was disabled with arthritis. 
And they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. And then the Lord heard. It just seems to me that the Lord finds it really, really difficult to resist that kind of prayer. And actually what you see, what I love about this passage is you see Moses kind of contending with God in the same similar way to the way Jacob wrestled with the angel. You know, it's like he's just trying everything he can. He says, but Lord, you said I'd found favor with you. But Lord, you said you'd know me by name. But Lord, if you're pleased with me, let me see it. But Lord, remember, these are your people. And then actually in verse 14, God says, okay, okay, my presence will go with you. But he's kind of built up a head of steam by that point and he kind of can't stop. So he carries on, verse 15. But Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, please don't send us away from here. But Lord, how will anyone else know that you're pleased with us? What is our distinguishing feature if it isn't your presence? But Lord, but Lord, but Lord, but Lord. And I just think the Lord loved every minute of it. Does God answer or seem to answer every prayer? No. Are there things that over the course of our lives we've asked Jesus to do for us that he doesn't seem to have done? Absolutely yes. But is God's heart moved by his people when they contend with him, when they plead with him, when they keep knocking on the door of heaven until he responds, yes. And so I wonder what that looks like for us. Like I know as a church family, for example, you know, we have Sunday nights, which is more of an opportunity to come in to this building and to just be freer in our worship and and to just give it some welly. We have the upper room. I think the next one of those is this coming Friday night. But what if just individually we were to seek God? What if just individually we were to begin to contend with him? Maybe the Lord would love it if we did that. Why don't we stand?